Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. When you think of Russian President Vladimir Putin... You probably think of him riding horseback shirtless or presiding over a large military parade. Putin's public appearances are typically loud, highly choreographed displays of masculinity and strength, which is part of what made his announcement today so notable. Today, Putin announced that he will be running for president again. There is no pomp and circumstance, just this video of a clearly staged impromptu moment where soldiers asked Putin to run again, and he agreed. That quietly puts Putin on track to lead Russia until past the year 2030. Now, Putin has effectively ruled Russia since the year 2000, and there is almost no doubt that he will win this upcoming election. If you remember the last Russian election in 2018, Putin had his main competitor, opposition leader Alexei Navalny, barred from running. And he won that election with a truly unbelievable 76 percent of the vote. Putin has since put Navalny in prison, where he remains to this day. Now, earlier this year, President Xi Jinping of China was similarly reelected to a third five-year term. He won that election by a 2,952 to zero vote in the Chinese National People's Congress. It's abundantly clear that these men are dictators. Their elections are anything but free and fair. Last month, the world watched as Secretary of State Antony Blinken winced while President Biden called President Xi a dictator. That declaration will not make Secretary Blinken's job of negotiating with China any easier. But President Biden told the truth anyway. Meanwhile, we all know what former President Trump thinks of dictators. The man who looks like a piece of granite, right? He's strong like granite. He's strong. I know him very well. President Xi of China. He runs 1.4 billion people with an iron hand. President Xi, smart, top of his game. President Putin, smart. Very smart people. In the last few days, there has been just an onslaught of analysis and reporting previewing how Donald Trump in a potential second term could become a dictator himself. This is something you might think Donald Trump would want to disavow, but this is how he decided to answer the question posed to him by Fox's Sean Hannity this week. Under no circumstances, you are promising America tonight you would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. I love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. Trump is already saying he's going to be a dictator on day one. The stakes for the 2024 election could not be clearer. And yet, this week we saw a Republican primary debate where rather than focusing on the elephant not in the room, Donald Trump, Republican candidates chose to fight amongst themselves. Republican leaders and party officials appear mostly content to stay silent. It seems increasingly likely that Donald Trump will be the GOP's 2024 nominee. 
And in that position, our electoral system itself gives Trump a major advantage. New analysis from The Washington Post today shows that more than ever, the Electoral College is set to distort this next election. In 2016, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 2.9 million votes, but she still lost the election. She would have won if just 80,000 people had voted differently in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. In 2020, about 45,000 votes in Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin could have changed the outcome of the entire race, even though Joe Biden won the popular vote by more than 7 million votes. This new analysis shows that compared to those races, the 2024 race will be even more lopsided. Red states are getting redder, blue states are getting bluer, and swing states are getting decidedly less purple. By the 2024 election, we may be at a point where only 18 percent of Americans live in a true battleground state. And the majority of the voters in those states are already decided. Democratic strategist Joe Trippi told The Washington Post that the 2024 election is going to come down to about 400,000 people in just three or four states. 400,000 people in a country of more than 330 million. Given how radically different these two potential presidential candidates are, what does it take to win among this outrageously small group of voters who still, even now, genuinely do not know who they are going to vote for? Joining me now are Jennifer Palmieri, co-host of How to Win 2024, the podcast, and former White House communications director, for President Obama, that would be Jennifer Palmieri and Michael Steele, one of the incoming co-hosts of The Weekend here on MSNBC and, of course, former RNC chair. Jen and Michael Steele, thank you so much for being here. Um, Jennifer Palmieri, please, please explain to those of us who truly don't understand how anyone is undecided at this point in time. A lot of people have not thought about Donald Trump much since he became uh, since he became the former president of yeah. the United States. You know, we all uh, live and breathe this and, you know, and 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 are, feel really passionate about it. But I think, um, and and there was a good uh, democracy core did a, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, run by some Democratic strategists, uh, Stan Greenberg, James Carville. They did a poll where they showed, even among voters who supported Donald, who supported Joe Biden um, in 2020, having a retrospective, giving uh, giving Trump a higher approval rating retrospectively than they hold, uh, than they give Joe Biden right now. So there is a lot of forgetting of, of amnesia, of, some might call of it. amnesia. Um, and then I think also I have seen a lot of focus groups in polling where people doubt that Donald Trump is actually going to be the nominee. They're mm-hmm. just not focused on it. They do remember that their 401ks were doing better pre-COVID. Um, and they remember that the, the, that the war, the world seemed to be a little calmer pre-COVID during, in, in the Trump years. Uh, but they don't, uh, they're just not, they don't, they don't believe that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. And they're forgetting what what a threat what he, that whole thing was what like. that whole thing was like and not you know they're not yet you know reading the Atlantic's great series of articles about how Donald Trump's second term would end democracy yeah oh, Michael so they're not reading the Atlantic they're not reading the Washington Post they're not reading the New York Times I mean all the publications that you all the big mainstream sort of flagship publications had pieces about the looming dictatorship of of Donald Trump mm-hmm. It is not clearly resonating with Republicans, and it may not be resonating with independent voters. And I wonder what you think if there is some magical way in which 
uh, those in the media or those concerned about the future of our democracy can better communicate with people who are not keying into the potential autocracy in our, in our, on the horizon? It's going to be a challenge, uh, Alex, to be honest, because uh, very much to Jennifer's point, voters are, you know, they're very particular about when they tune in. They've got other stuff going on. And, and you know, she's right. We, we this close to it, you know, are, are vexed by it and concerned. And we express that and we are using words that actually in some sense sound foreign to uh a lot of voters out there, you know, when you tell them this race is going to boil down to 400,000 people, you know, in three or four states, you're like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I haven't voted yet. What are you talking about? So it, there is that part of it. So what you do is you pull the lens back, which is why I've always been very concerned about national polls a year out from a presidential election, sort of dictating the terms of engagement when voters aren't tuned in. They're not tuned in. So you've got to pull the lens back. Uh, and look at that data to get some some sense of what are some of the threads that can be woven by the Biden administration and his political team that will connect dots for voters around the bigger question of democracy, mm -hmm. but and tie that specifically to those polls that are showing that people are genuinely concerned about their economies. They're genuinely concerned about the culture, not that they are you know, uh, anti-gay or anti-lesbian and anti-trans or, or anti-this, uh, that, or other group, or they're concerned about CRT, what little they know about it, not because they're anti-Black, but because they haven't focused on them. So when they're hearing this stuff, it is like, what are you talking about? And then they start to, they're having other people form the opinion for them. Mm -hmm. So it's important that those, the rest of us, all those uh, media sources you mentioned, programs like yours and others, uh, talk about it in terms that help people kind of bring them into the conversation because they're not there yet. Uh, um, the economy that Michael Steele mentioned, you also yeah. alluded to this in the 401k mention that yeah. we're hearing in focus yeah. groups. Chris Hayes has been amazing on this, talking in exhausting himself, talking yeah. about the Biden economy and actually how good it is. Right. It is as if people forget that Donald Trump help dive the country into a global pandemic. They right? do actually forget that. It <laughs> right. is, it's not as if they he do. He was president in 2020. Right, right. Um, I think that there's a feeling, if Democrats are feeling hopeless a little bit about, you know, what looms in the foreground, right. there's a sense that issues like abortion, if the economy yeah. isn't resonating, then the performance of Democrats in yeah. terms on social issues, like big important issues like abortion, could help the Biden candidacy and Democrats down ticket. Yeah, you have to do all of the things. So we have a year out. We have the most fragmented media environment any presidential candidate has faced in a century, certainly. Um, so take advantage of that because you can tell a lot of different stories to different audiences by using um, digital tools. So I think you have to, you have to, somebody I talked to last night to get advice on, well, I don't know, what do you think everyone should do, uh, said, suggested that the Biden campaign go back and retell the story of March 2020 about, and also what Biden walked into, to just remind people what a mess he walked into with, with COVID, you know, plus, uh, Plus at post right, plus post Jan six riot, so that there is some there's some context for 
how the economy is now that people you, know, you have to you have to tell that part of the story to remember people how bad it was. It's like Biden when he said Osama bin Laden was is Biden, right? O- Obama, Osama bin Laden is dead and General Motors is alive. Right. right. There was right. just a really this is what this is what happened. This is what you got. Here we are. Right. So you have to so you may have to, you may have to tell that story. And I think that you have to prove that Biden's plan is working, even if people don't feel that prices are as low as now as they were when Trump was president. Although I think by the time we get to the election, you know, that's two years, you know, a year, you know, it's like a year from now. Like, I I think people may have uh, maybe feeling better about the economy, about prices at that point. Uh, But you just want to prove people he has a plan and it's working. Right. And that there and the the stakes. I just I don't think, you know, we're all concerned about democracy, but you have to make that tangible and real for people. Like, what does it actually mean? It means it's going to take away your Obamacare. It means that women aren't going to be able to make decisions about their health care. It means that uh, that the government is that extreme MAGA uh, 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 officials are going to be running uh, are going to be in the White House and the Congress, and they're going to be trying to tell your kids what books they can read. You know, I think it is, it can't just be democracy is at stake. It has to be specific, tangible rights or, you know, or your economic standing that you're going, that is going to suffer. Um, And they, they have a year to do that. It, It has to feel visceral. Yeah. And, and tangible and, and, you know, Obamacare, I mean, two gifts, Trump saying he is going to repeal Obamacare because that is a popular thing that people rely on every day now. And then I am going to be a dictator. So on day one, on day one, um, Michael Steele, I got to ask you this because there's been so much talk this week about Nikki Haley. The chances uh-huh. of her actually ousting Donald Trump as a front runner seem um, thin, uh, slim. <laughs> Wait, are you are you going to be you just raised your hand like I'm going to be the person no, that also no, no, is Nikki Haley no. is a third party candidate. Do you think that that's a possibility? No, no, there's no, no, no. Let's get off the third party stuff. It, it is it is a it is a rabbit hole to hell uh, for the political consequences in 2024 and 2025 and beyond. Um, the country is not the, the, the country's not fully read in on what this means. Um, it is a, it's reactionary. Uh, those running those efforts can't tell you which of the battleground states of those three or four states uh, that you referenced or by that matter, for that matter, any state that they can get electoral votes, a college votes from um, and and claim for themselves. So the reality of it is. There's no space for Nikki to become a third party candidate. She will either be um, endorsing if Trump's the nominee, when Trump's the nominee, endorsing him or or not endorsing him Mm. on his ticket or not on his ticket. So, I mean, it's, it's that black and white at this point. They have less than 40 days to close a gap of 50 points. It's it's, yeah, it's a lot to make up. I don't think I've heard the phrase rabbit hole to hell yet. And uh, I can thank you, Michael Steele, for debuting that phrase on this family program. Jennifer Palmieri, former RNC Michael Chair, Michael Chair, Michael Steele. Thank you both for keeping me honest tonight. We have a lot this evening. The chairman of Florida's Republican Party is rebuffing calls to step down in the wake of a rape allegation by invoking Donald Trump. Plus, will Donald Trump be able to stay out of federal criminal court before the November election? There was new movement on that front today, and that is coming up next.
everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Right now, Donald Trump's court date in the federal 2020 election interference case is March 4th. That's less than three months away. Now, Trump is doing his level best to delay this trial until after the presidential election in November at the earliest. And one of his main strategies to do that is by claiming presidential immunity, something that Judge Tanya Chutkin rejected in a ruling last week, but that Trump continues to appeal. The question now is, how long will this appeals process take? Can Trump weaponize it as a delay mechanism? Well, today it looks like the D.C. Circuit Court, which is handling Trump's appeal here, that looks like that court is not moving swiftly. The court is giving Trump until the day after Christmas, nearly three weeks from now, just to submit preliminary paperwork. And there is more paperwork before the judges can actually hear the case. So it's going to be at least January before the appeal is actually heard. Now, the appeals process doesn't stop the underlying case from moving forward. Trump would need an official pause, known as a stay, for that to happen. And so Trump is asking Judge Chutkin for that stay until the D.C. Circuit Court rules on his broader appeal. The judge is expected to rule on that as early as next week. Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Joyce, thank you for being here. Um, I wonder how you read the timeline that is emerging on this broader appeal effort. Right. So on the one hand, it's discouraging, Alex, because of this particular case. On the other hand, this is how appeals work. The courts give the parties some time to get everything docketed. The record from the proceedings below has to be compiled. Given the urgency of this matter, I wonder if we might not see Jack Smith's team take a stab at asking the court to expedite proceedings. But I think reality dictates here that the judges have looked at the calendar and they've decided that they don't want to go until after the Christmas holiday. So can you walk me through practically how many more sort of procedural steps are in place before we could actually get to a hearing on the appeal? Right. So there will have to be a briefing schedule and the court will order that. You know, with the gag order proceedings, they did it on an expedited basis. They gave the parties very limited time to file their briefs. The moving party will get to file their brief. The other side files a response and then there's a reply. And there's always a period of at least several days between those 
Once all of the briefs are in, the court is free to set oral argument as quickly as it wishes to. But what has to happen before the parties can write their briefs is this formal step that appellate lawyers are used to known as compiling the record. In this case, it's not extensive. They'll have to get transcripts from hearings in the court below. They'll have to get briefing papers. That's about it. It's not like a trial where that record can take uh, quite a long time to compile. Okay, I'm not going to hold you to a timeline, but I do, for people who are hoping this is going to move quickly and not affect the ultimate trial date of March 4th, it sounds somewhat discouraging. I do wonder whether, what sort of what you think about Trump's effort to get all of the sort of pretrial motions, the jury selection, all of that machinery stopped in place asking for a stay on this. Do you think he has a case to be made here? Yeah. So this is going to be a little bit of a pitched battle, and the law is not entirely clear. Um, Typically, litigants are entitled to a stay of any matters that are related to the appeal. And so the question will be whether or not Judge Chutkin can continue to take steps to move the case towards trial. Trump will say she can't because if he wins on his immunity argument, then all of this has to go away. The government isn't entitled to try him. I think, on the other hand, in this case, there's a very legitimate um, argument to be made about the interest in the court system in seeing this move forward expeditiously. Trump won't be particularly prejudiced if she continues to rule on motions and takes preliminary steps towards selecting a jury. All of the evidence in this case has been discussed in public in the course of the January 6th committee hearings in the House. So it's a little bit of an undecided question for the appellate courts to consider. Joyce, how much of this uh, court business do you think is going to end up at the Supreme Court? I mean, the request for the stay could end up there. The broader appeal effort could end up there. Even the gag order, we may not be done with that either. I mean, how much is the Roberts Court going to see of all of this, do you think? Yeah, the interesting question is whether the court will want to take these matters up because They can, and we have seen them do this before. It comes to them as an appeal, and they say, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to let the appellate court's decision stand, in essence, letting the D.C. Circuit decide these matters. And so lots of complicated um, sorts of inquiries here, including whether or not all of the Supreme Court justices will continue to sit on cases involving Donald Trump. We saw the first case uh, where Justice Thomas stepped aside. That involved uh, John Eastman, a Trump co-defendant in Georgia, who is one of Clarence Thomas's former law clerks. So that may have been just for that matter. But as these cases go up to the Supreme Court, Justice Thomas might step aside, uh, leaving only eight justices justices to decide the cases. And of course, with that comes the possibility of an even split. All sorts of complications, um, I, I think, is the banner headline here. And the question of whether things proceed quickly or not is largely going to be decided by the judge in the D.C. Court of Appeals who is willing to move the most slowly. In other words, if there's one judge who decides to take more time crafting or signing off on the opinion, that judge could conceivably slow the process down. Yeah, and we don't know which judges on the Circuit Court of Appeals are going to be assigned to this case. That is going to be highly determinative. Joyce Vance, always great to see you. Thank you for your wisdom tonight, Joyce. I appreciate it. Thanks. We have more ahead tonight, including an exclusive look at the front lines of the migrant crisis and how big cities are coping. But first, what about Trump? 
The embattled chair of Florida's Republican Party invokes the Trump defense against serious allegations of sexual battery. That is next. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The Republican Party here, we're ready to fight. We demand more from our candidates, and we definitely demand more from our elected officials. And in Florida, we stand with parents, not perverts. That was the chairman of the Florida Republican Party, a man named Christian Ziegler, last year. Mr. Ziegler had been one of Governor DeSantis' strongest allies in his statewide culture war. Ziegler is also an ally of Donald Trump. When he won the Florida Republican Party chair earlier this year, Trump celebrated his, quote, big victory and said Ziegler would be a great chairman. Mr. Ziegler's wife, Bridget, is a co-founder of Moms for Liberty, a group that has led the nationwide movement to ban books and classroom discussions of sexual orientation, gender identity, institutional racism, and anything else that they deem incompatible with so-called family values. So the Ziegler's were kind of rock stars in the conservative world in Florida, until last week. That's when reports surfaced that Christian Ziegler is under investigation for alleged, uh, the alleged rape of a woman with whom he and his wife have been having periodic threesomes. According to reports on October 2nd, the Zieglers made plans for a threesome with the unnamed woman in her home. But when Christian Ziegler arrived at the woman's home alone, the woman says she was raped and sexually battered by Ziegler. Christian Ziegler has strongly denied the allegation and no charges have been filed at this point. But that has not stopped nearly every top elected Republican in the state of Florida from calling on Mr. Ziegler to resign as party chair. Christian Ziegler, however, is refusing to step aside. And the reason he refuses to do so is because of Donald Trump. According to the Messenger website, sources say Ziegler has accused Republicans who want to boot him from office of hypocrisy because they're not denouncing Trump, even though Trump was recently held liable for sexually abusing E. Jean Carroll in 1996. According to one Republican, Florida Republican official, Ziegler said to him, oh, so you're a big Trump guy, you're a big Trump guy, but it's okay for Trump. You don't call on him to resign, but you want me to step down? By way of a response to this logic, I guess, that same Republican official told Ziegler, Trump wasn't the president of the United States and accused of rape at the same time. He wasn't even in office. You were. And President Trump wasn't doing threesomes either. 
Apologies to anyone who is now trying to unsee that image. But this is the predicament that Republicans now face because of their undying loyalty to Donald Trump. Men accused of carrying out attacks against women have learned from the guy at the top that they can simply deny and obfuscate and bully their way into making everyone else just go along with them. And the problem Florida Republicans are now discovering isn't that Christian Ziegler has violated the values of his party. It is that Christian Ziegler is right at home in the modern day GOP. Still ahead tonight, our exclusive report from inside New York City's historic Roosevelt Hotel. Ground zero for the ongoing migrant crisis. That's next. There has been ongoing tension, if not outright combat, between state and city officials across the country and the Biden White House over immigration. It is a battle that transcends partisan lines to some degree. Here in New York City, Democratic Mayor Eric Adams has been publicly critical of the Biden administration, saying D.C. has abandoned us. In the past two years, tens of thousands of migrants with no place to stay have crossed the southern border and arrived in New York City. Some were sent by Republican governors, some aimed to land in New York, and others have arrived without knowing where they are. One thing remains true for all of them. New York is the only major city in the country required by the courts to provide shelter, food, and care to anyone who needs it. For more than a year on this show, we have been tracking the impact of this ongoing wave of migration. We have interviewed migrants from South America who fled their homes under dire circumstances, made death-defying trips across multiple borders, and arrived here, historically, a city of immigrants. This fall, we checked in with officials to see how a city like New York is handling the impossible, providing aid and shelter without enough of either. When it opened in 1924, the Roosevelt Hotel was a luxury destination. As New York City socialites flocked to the Art Deco building, an artist, Guy Lombardo, made the hotel famous for his annual rendition of Old Lang Syne. Happy New Year, everybody. A very happy New Year. The Roosevelt soon earned the nickname the Grand Dame of Madison Avenue. Today, a top New York City health official is calling it the new Ellis Island. Welcome to the New York City Asylum Seeker Arrival Center. Dr. Ted Long led New York City's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, alongside New York City Immigration Commissioner Manny Castro, Long is dealing with a crisis of a different kind, finding shelter for more than 140,000 migrants who have arrived in New York City in the past year and a half. So what exactly is happening here? What is this area? So when people come into the arrival center, we immediately want to give you a place to sit, offer you a meal, make sure your kids are attended to. Then you come up here and this is where you register. Registration is what's your name and how big is your family so that we know exactly how many families are here and how big the families are. So that as rooms become available in New York City, we know who can get placed there immediately. Under the chandeliers in the main lobby where New Yorkers once hobnobbed, immigrants now wait to be registered. They are exhausted, they are worried, Many have made dangerous treks to get here. And now they need a place to stay. Sí, tengo miedo porque no nos dan razón. 
nos dicen que nos van a ubicar, pero no sé. Que lavan por los niños. Yo, hemos pasado muchas cosas, tanto como mujeres, bastante, con los niños, toda mi trayectoria. Agradecida estoy con lo que vayan a hacer, pero que nos digan, porque acá de la noche y hay mucho frío aquí en Nueva York y mis niños están chiquitos. The number of rooms we have available across New York City at this given moment is zero. That's why we have so many people in the lobby now. That's our so work. none of these people have a place to sleep tonight? Correct. None of them do. And currently, it's not an exaggeration, we have zero rooms across New York City for families with children. Outside of the hotel, hundreds more wait to be processed. There are no beds available, but a consent decree requires New York City to offer anyone and everyone shelter. Think about this for a moment, New Yorkers. We have a policy in place right now that states you can come from anywhere on the globe. Come to New York City and we have to pay for your food, shelter, clothing for as long as you want. When does it reach a point where it says it's not sustainable? How many a day are you getting? Last week there was a day where we got a thousand, over a thousand people. Oh. So we're seeing a surge and, and that is just, to us it's unsustainable because our city was not set up to manage a humanitarian crisis of this magnitude for this long. More than 2.4 million people have crossed the southern border in the past year. A recent spike brought on in part by the end of a COVID era policy that turned back migrants at the border. Thousands of them are now in New York City. Joel Hernandez is one of them. Like millions of others, Hernandez left Venezuela to escape food scarcity and poverty. It took him almost four years to make it to the U.S., but when Hernandez finally arrived at the southern border last year, he had no idea he would end up in New York. A free bus ticket made the decision for him. When I was in the center of detention, ellos me preguntaron que si yo tenía pasaje y realmente no tenía la cantidad de dinero para llegar acá y ellos me llevaron a una, a una fundación que es como una iglesia donde estaban mandando a diferentes lugares, Miami, eh, Washington, D.C. y Nueva York. Y yo escogí Nueva York porque aquí era donde estaba mi hermano. Hernández now works as a delivery driver in a city he barely knows. Cuando veníamos, lo único que sabíamos al respecto de eso era que era una ciudad santuaria donde los inmigrantes eran protegidos y no los podían deportar. Since the spring of 2022, Republican governors have been sending often unsuspecting migrants to liberal cities, using human beings as pawns to exact political revenge and hoping to provoke an anti-immigrant backlash. They put out policies self-proclaiming that they're sanctuary cities. And they love to promote these liberal ideologies until they have to actually live up and apply them. This past weekend, there was a night where between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m., we had seven unannounced buses from Texas arrive overnight. Were those buses that were sent by the governor? No, those are buses that were sent by the governor and the cities of Texas. Clearly, Texas wants to make a point. But what are we to do? Let people sleep in the street? Uh, you don't want them in our country. This has been a live issue on the presidential campaign trail, 
where Donald Trump has been stoking anti-immigrant fear for political profit. We know they're terrorists. It is a very sad thing for our country. Uh, it's poisoning the blood of our country. That sort of language has been echoed across the country. This year, even Mayor Eric Adams, a Democrat, has come under fire for rhetoric critics call dangerous for immigrants. This issue will destroy New York City. Adams has further described migrants as financial burdens for New York taxpayers. If I raise your taxes because anyone on the globe that wants to come to New York City can stay here for the, forever, and the federal government is saying it's on our tab, listen, idealism collides with realism all the time. The realism is we are out of room. We are I'm the daughter of immigrants. Yep. This is an immigrant city. Yeah. New York City wants to, in theory, welcome immigrants. But the mayor's rhetoric around immigrants, and specifically this group of migrants, has been very abrasive in recent months. And I understand the frustration and the desire for the federal government to intervene in more formal capacity. But do you at all worry that the messaging from City Hall has not been actually that welcoming to the immigrants who will find themselves here? Well, we've been saying this for over a year, that we need help. We have to say it in a way that people, you know, pay attention. To guarantee beds for every asylum seeker who comes to New York City, more than 200 new city-funded emergency shelters have popped up all over the city. Most people assume that this is, this is being done by the federal government. And, and we're, we're doing it in, in New York City. And we're hoping that this can be used as a model to be replicated everywhere else in the country. Yeah. But in the meantime, you know, we can't be the only ones. The Biden administration is helping. We've already delivered over $1 billion that Congress appropriated to states and cities receiving immigrants. But New York City officials say it's not nearly enough. The city has already spent more than $2 billion to house and care for newcomers since the spring of 2022. It is expected to spend $12 billion over three fiscal years. They only gave us a little over $100 million to pay for this. In September, the Biden administration eased pressure on would-be migrants by offering temporary protected status to more than 470,000 Venezuelans already in the U.S., that status allows them to obtain work permits, but some DHS officials worry this might prompt more migration from elsewhere. In the meantime, everyone else is left in limbo. Every asylum seeker we communicated with said, we don't want anything free from New York. We just want to be able to contribute to the city. People who call New York City home represent more than 200 nationalities. Many came through the southern border, were processed at the Roosevelt Hotel, and are now the newest New Yorkers. This is Turkish, right? Yeah, it looks like Turkish or Ukrainian because we serve a lot of Ukrainian. Oh. For now, the Roosevelt Hotel is the only arrival center in New York City. The work is hard, but welcoming migrants is a reminder of what has always made America, America. Coming up next, we will talk to national immigration reporter Caitlin Dickerson of The Atlantic 
about the Republican efforts to turn the quandary of mass migration into a political tinderbox. That's next. They don't care that illegal aliens are are ravaging our community and overwhelming our community. The commander in chief not only has a right, you have a responsibility to fight back against these people. Immigration has been one of the most animating subjects of the 2024 presidential race so far. The prohibitive frontrunner of the Republican primary, Donald Trump, has embraced mass deportations, giant deportation camps, and may be considering resumption of his family separation policy. Tonight, a federal judge weighed in to make sure that does not happen again. In response to a 2018 lawsuit filed by the ACLU, Judge Dana Sabraw approved a settlement that prohibits U.S. officials from separating families for the next eight years. It also offers aid to the thousands of families who were separated at the border by the Trump administration, as many as 1,000 of whom have still not been reunited. Joining me now is Caitlin Dickerson, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and staff writer at The Atlantic. Her latest piece, The Specter of Family Separation, looks at the immigration policies Trump enacted as president and what he might do if reelected in 2024. Caitlin, thank you for being here tonight. First, your assessment of what this um, this ruling from the judge does for future potential family separation policies from a future potential Trump administration. So this ruling is a really big deal, right? The ACLU and the separated families who were part of this case got just about everything that they asked for, short of a forever ban on family separations, which is important to point out. But they got eight years in which family separations are not allowed. They got legal representation for families who are separated. They can apply for housing. They can apply for medical care. They can apply for mental health care to deal with the emotional challenges wrought by family separations. And those who are still stuck outside the country can come to the United States and seek asylum. But yes, you cannot make separated families whole through these measures or any other. I mean, I'm somebody whose job is words, and I actually find it hard to articulate the depth and the sort of jaggedness of the wound that family separation has caused. I've watched people in interviews in front of me have PTSD flashbacks. Their voice changes, the expression on their face. They almost become a different person. They sort of leave the room entirely. And, you know, relationships are forever changed and damaged if these families have been brought back together at all, as you right. pointed out, up to a thousand haven't. So there's a big asterisk at the end of this settlement. What does it tell you that in the wake of that sort of trauma, Trump is out there on the in the in the media suggesting that mass deportation, potentially even bringing back family separation, could be planks of his immigration policy for 2025 if he wins the White House. Trump has made a very clear political calculation, as has, I think, the Republican Party, that talking about harsh crackdowns on immigration is is a winning proposition for them. And you can look to the way that the president, the former president, President Trump, performed when he won the race in 2016, emphasizing these harsh immigration policies. Of course, he did not win in 2020, but feels strongly enough that his base that is concerned about immigration is going to be with him and is going to be really critical for him in 2024. You hear the Republican candidates running against him for the nomination saying a lot of the same things. And so it it flies in the face 
of the very strong, and remember, bipartisan backlash yeah. to family separations, but that's where we are politically. What, if, what has happened? I, I just always want to go back to the stories of what has happened to these families, these people, because they've been so dehumanized in the national rhetoric. What has happened to these children who have been separated from their parents for potentially years on end? You understand the human stories in the way that few others do. I've been able to follow the stories of some separated families for years. And those stories start with being physically sometimes wrenched away from parents, sent to shelters across the country with no notification to parents about where their children ended up and no notification to the workers who were caring for those children as to who they were, where their parents were, how they could ever be brought back together. And then children... You might remember languished a lot of times in those shelters. Some spent months in those shelters. And so me and other reporters, you know, we watched reunifications take place where it was almost like children didn't recognize their parents, were sort of speechless, didn't know what to say. You know, parents would break down apologizing profusely. It was that was what we heard a lot. You know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over and over again. And, you know, the years of trying to rebuild relationships, I hear again and again, have just been very full of challenges, full of ups and downs, you know, lots of PTSD symptoms, like I mentioned, and ones that mental health experts say may never go away. Wounds for scars. Um, Caitlin, you're reporting. It's so right that you won the Pulitzer. It's so deserved. This is one of the essential stories of our times, and you are a great chronicler of it. Thank you for doing that for, for all of us to remind ourselves of who we are as a country. That is our show for this evening. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.